In the Mouth of Madness is my, I don't know, 15th or 16th movie as a director. And it's, uh, it's one of three films I would call the Apocalypse Trilogy, uh, beginning with The Thing, and the second is Prince of Darkness and In the Mouth of Madness. We're going to start off with a title sequence here that we shot in an actual uh, printing factory up in uh, Toronto, Canada. And we shot it as a second unit one Saturday morning. And uh, it's actually a rather unique sequence because uh, I haven't done one of these. It's, it's a little bit like student filmmaking, but uh, it's a lot of real quick cuts. Here we go. Kind of a printing press situation. You want to talk about the kind of lighting that we did in this, Gary? There wasn't much to it, was there? Not really. Uh, we use a lot of available light in a few small units uh, and uh, a lot of long lenses, so everything was pretty much concentrated to the uh, mechanics of the printing presses. Now, is this primarily uh, a neon light from overhead that we're seeing here? What, what's the lighting source in the factory, do you recall? Uh, pretty much top light uh, neon fluorescent lighting, but uh, all this inside long lens uh, mechanical uh, shots uh, we have lit yeah. with our small units. We got quite a, quite a number of setups on this because uh, it has to be a montage and we're throwing focus back and forth. Um, shooting in Panavision once again, uh, my favorite aspect ratio. And I believe you've come to like it too, haven't you? Don't it's you enjoy it? It's my favorite. It? It's your favorite now. There you go. Uh, we shot this movie in uh, 1993 up in uh, Toronto, Canada. And it's based on a screenplay by uh, Mike DeLuca, uh, based upon uh, the works of H.P. Lovecraft. It's a uh, star Sam Neill, who uh, I just recently saw, who's a great fan of the film also. But it, it, it deals with uh, kind of an end of the world situation in a, in a rather unique way. We had uh, the book covers made up for us uh, for the film. And uh, they turned out rather well, this whole campaign done by Jeff Ginn for the books, uh, of course, we had to create. And there's Coming Soon in the Mouth of Madness. These are actually printing presses that make up a variety of things, books, uh, leaflets, and so forth. That's kind of a nice uh, slashing light on that, uh, that, Gary, that you put in there. And now we're at the uh, uh, sewage uh, water reclamation plant, which is on, I believe it's Lake Ontario, isn't that it? Yes. And we're in a, kind of a morning situation here. It's a very beautiful lighting. And we're going to go inside in a minute um, to shoot a sequence in there. And here we are. Now, how much of this is available light, Gary, and how much did you have to light in this sequence? Probably 75% uh, was uh, available light, and the rest was uh, either highlights or fill. Now, by, by available light, you mean it's light sunlight. Com sunlight coming in the top of those windows right. that are pouring down. That's the reason you can get such, such depth in these shots. You're seeing all the way back down this hallway because we've got all this sunlight coming in. And I think if you look uh, carefully, there you go. You see a real wide uh, kind of Stanley Kubrick type shots here. <laughs> We're introducing uh, John Trent, who's uh, going to give someone a swift kick in the balls here in just one second. And uh, John Glover is reacting to this. Here we go. Boom. There we go. And we're off and running. And from the soundtrack, you can hear the kind of echoey sound in the hallway. Now we're on a, a soundstage on a set that was built for the movie. How, what would your approach be to lighting this particular sequence here? We pretty much use 10Ks coming through the windows to uh, much make it feel like sunlight uh, coming from uh, 
ground level and uh, trying to keep it as natural looking as possible as a, a basement look would be. And well, what's a 10K for, for those who don't know? Well, a 10K is a, uh, a light uh, that is uh, incandescent that uh, puts out about 10,000 uh, foot candles. 10,000 foot candles? That's a kind of a big baby. Per unit. What's the biggest uh, the biggest light that uh, that you've used on this show, particular show that we're would be a twelve k twelve k, which is usually uh, incandescent or uh, uh, day, daylight daylight. So now we're into uh, the music sequence with the, the carpenters, uh, music playing over. Uh, did you did you make any difference between the the light that's coming through the window? Did you differentiate between that light? on the outside and the light inside in the hallway. Are they different lights or they have gels on them? How do you, how do, you do that? Well, these are incandescent lights, which is uh, 3200 Kelvin, uh -huh. and uh, which represents with the film that we're using a balance uh, for daylight in, inside. And uh, it's just a big unit which covers a lot of area and simplifies using a, a lot of uh, little lights and sometimes uh, gives you a more natural look when you minimize the source. And now we uh, go into a little sequence here where Sam uh, is haunted by uh, the demons that are chasing him. And you see the light begin to dim. The lights are actually on a dimmer that looks right. like a household dimmer that you can turn up and down. And uh, as I recall, Sam was injured during the shooting of this. That breakaway glass uh, shattered behind his head and cut his neck. He wasn't too happy about it, but being the trooper that he was, he continued. Um, we see a lot of flickering of the lights, and, and I noticed that uh, in this sequence, the light from above, the top light, stays on. Is that light pointing down, or is it behind him? Well, how do you position something like that? This was uh, happening from outside. Uh, the, light, the light in the building through the story is... Uh, in conjunction with the uh, lightning, too, was flickering as it was shorting out. Now we go into this little uh, montage sequence of various things from the film, and then we're back. Uh, this has all been a product of uh, Trent's imagination. We're about to uh, cut to nighttime, and uh, here we are. Now you see a lightning machine flashing out there, and there's David Warner reacting. Is, is uh, your night lighting situation here in the same hallway that we've been in. How's that different from the daylight? What do you do different? We just add a uh, CTB uh, blue gel filter on uh, all the atmosphere uh, background lights and pretty much try and maintain a natural skin tone on the uh, actors, which is 3200 Kelvin, a much warmer <coughs> light. What's the most difficult thing to do? Light for daylight or light for night when you're in an interior set? Is it difficult to light uh, a daylight scene if you're competing with the sunlight outside? Is that harder, say, than doing a night scene? I would say daytime. Daytime. The balance from the outside to the uh, inside. However, when you're inside like this and have total control, uh, it's there's not too much difference other than the color. Now we notice a little slash of, of blue light on the back wall coming from that high window, and that's the uh, the blue gel light that you're talking about, right. isn't it? Okay. That lets uh, the audience know that uh, it's nighttime out. So now we're in a dialogue scene. We learn a little bit about John Trent here and why he's in there. Sam really enjoyed playing this role. It, it, Sam has an, 
enormous sense of humor as an actor and happens to be <coughs> the world's uh, biggest fan of the Beach Boys is obsessed with the Beach Boys, especially their role works. And so uh, we had a lot to talk about during the movie. This dialogue scene uh, uh, covers the fact that John Trent has gotten himself into an institution and is actually hiding from something outside that we'll be dealing with later. It's a rather wide-angle lens that we're using here. I don't remember what uh, millimeter it is. Was it a... a 24, I believe. 24 millimeter lens. It seems to... Uh, make the walls kind of bend in certain cases mm -hmm. and, and wide-angle lenses tend to do that isn't that right yes especially on anamorphic you get a certain amount of keystoning on the edges keystoning being meaning uh, that there's a bow in the uh, the left and right side of the frame so uh, the walls or whatever would be would be kind of tilted or, or Round, curved right. rounded uh-huh so we're into the dialogue scene now and and basically this is uh, pretty conventional coverage, except uh, you're keeping Sam uh, kind of darkish. Uh, he seems to be lit from above and... Just using one source light as a top light. So he's only top lit in this in this situation. What about David Warren? Yeah, David Warren's pretty much the same uh, other than that we may uh, add a eye light just to give them a little uh, tinge of light hitting their eyes. So now we're about to get into our story and uh, Sam is telling us he's going to sit down in that blue light a little bit now, which is coming over his shoulder and hitting the side of his face. What uh, do you use for an eye light on an actor? Uh, in some cases we've used uh, Tweenies, which is a very small 200 watt uh, incandescent light, and in most cases because of uh, stands and uh, things in the set that uh, don't enable us to have the control we'd like to, particularly if the actors are moving. We use a flashlight that's been set up just to give a little eye light. So in a lot of cases, when you're looking at a, at a scene, you're, the actor is acting and you're shining a flashlight in his eyes right. to make his eyes glitter, like the scene we're looking at now where Sam is uh, talking to Peter Jason. Um, he's, he's an insurance investigator, and he's about to, to bust uh, Peter Jason for being... Uh, a crook, and Bernie Casey is the owner of the company. This is a location in downtown Toronto. Um, it's a very, very beautiful scene in terms of Venetian blinds and light coming from the outside. Did you light from the outside, or is that natural light out there? It's actually a combination of both. Uh, we were working under a uh, overcast day at uh, different times, so consequently to uh, protect ourselves, we used uh, three 12, uh, 12K uh, HMI lights to uh, supplement the sunlight in case we went under uh, a complete cloud cover. We had enough light coming from these 12, 12Ks to uh, achieve the same look. The scene we're watching here is uh, an example of um, you can do a dialogue scene or an intimate scene in, uh, in anamorphic or Panavision or widescreen, however you want to call it. But what seems to work very well, uh, there's a nice wide three shot, is that when you're shooting over uh, either someone's shoulder uh, or, or a part of their body, there's a close-up of Sam. Uh, we're leaving space on the right-hand side of the frame since the frame is so big. And uh, as he hands the photos uh, uh, to Peter Jason, you, in the reverse cut here, you see, there you go, you see the edge of Sam's body kind of creeping in the shot. So I, I always feel it's nice to have something 
in the frame rather than just keeping it bare or keep the frame uh, uh, open on one side. Except here's a nice little two shot. Sam leans in, is going to pat him. We'll cut back to the master for the end. A little pat on the shoulder. And we'll cut to our next location, which is an actual uh, restaurant that I understand now is completely closed down in Toronto. And we're shooting out into the street. And as my experience, it's really difficult to light a scene like this where you're looking out into daylight and you are in the inside and you've got a, a two actors in the foreground, lighting them to make them look like they match the outside. Is that is that hard to do? You just have to have, to have enough uh, light power to uh, light the individuals to balance with the amount of sunlight that is uh, happening outside from the sun naturally. And uh, generally, uh, in this case, we're shooting through a window that uh, we didn't have the opportunity of gelling with a filter, which uh, knocks down the uh, outside light to a level that uh, is more favorable for balancing and not using as many lights inside to achieve a balance where you can see the background and in the interior at the same time, which you would see normally if you were in that same situation. Here comes uh, the... the, uh, the Unknown assailant in the background. Well, you use the word balance a lot, Gary. What what do you mean by that? I don't know if, if the listeners will understand. The, Sam and Bernie in the foreground are lit, and in the background is slightly brighter. You're talking about the balance between the light between the two situations. Is that right? Right. The light inside, uh, the amount of light inside, and the amount of light outside. Now, if one of the uh, outside or the inside is much brighter than the other uh, many times it'll be uh, real light and washed out look and you won't really see any color or detail so what you have to do is pretty much build the interior up to a level that it's acceptable so you will see what's happening outside and now we shoot uh, this fellow with the axe he had some strange looking eyes provided by k and b effects they were actually contact lenses the guy uh, unfortunately he he was a real trooper i think he scratched his cornea and now we're into uh, Sam's apartment uh, for a news bulletin about Sutter Kane and his effect on uh, readers and riots in bookstores. This was a location in Toronto again, um, a very kind of classy house. We shot the footage on television with um, uh, video cameras and then uh, played it back on, on uh, TV when we were shooting this particular scene. And in a second, we're about to cut uh, into a location and meet Charlton Heston. And this particular location is the book publishing house. Now we have a little montage of book covers here. And now we will find Sam in this, there he is. There are, are enormous windows in the background in this very kind of glassy uh, a steel office building. And then the next shot as we come in, there we go. We're looking right out into don, downtown Toronto. As I recall, this was a difficult set to light because the windows, looking on the outside, were tinted green. What kind of problems do you have with that kind of thing? Well, number one, you're gonna have a color shift because the uh, tinted windows are green, so you're really not gonna get a natural color uh, look from the outside. And in this case, uh, in terms of schedule and budget, uh, the best thing we can do or the most efficient would be to go with what it is and just neutral down the window so we can balance the light inside to the outside. When you say neutral, what do you mean? Neutral density filter? Neutral is that... density filter, which uh, just uh, does nothing other than eliminate the amount of light that, that is penetrating through the glass. 
Now we've met uh, uh, Charlton Heston, who's the book publisher, and Julie Carmen, who turns out to be uh, the editor who's been working with Sutter Kane. And we're into a dialogue scene. These, these are, uh, for me as a director, these are thankless scenes. There's a lot of dialogue has to be covered, and yet there's not a whole lot you can do in a small room. Uh, you have a nice wide shot master from one side. But uh, every time you move the camera or move around, um, lighting will begin to kill you. So I always try to do these scenes as efficiently and, and uh, pleasantly as possible. It was a great deal of fun working with Charlton Heston. He had a, a lot of stories to tell about the old days working with uh, William Wyler and, and Cecil B. DeMille and so forth. And um, I had a great time working with him. We, uh, we spent a lot of time uh, on this particular scene. This was a couple of days. And in a moment, uh, we're going to do uh, uh, two rather long dolly shots uh, in, the, in the hallway, one upstairs and one downstairs. And the one downstairs uh, takes a whole lot of dialogue and basically plays it in one shot. And this is always a, a real chance when you're, when you're a cameraman or a director, because if you make a mistake, there's nothing, there's no other place to go to fix it. In the sequences like this, you have alternate takes that you can cut to. And um, as you'll see in a second, and we follow Sam out, and the sunlight's coming through, so you're shooting directly out into the sun, and yet you're having to light this particular part inside, plus the actors have to hit their marks, and the camera has to be hitting its marks, and also they have to be in focus. And um, there was one particular line on the steps here. Julie's going down. And we had to throw in a loop line right there. And it's very difficult because the sound changes so much. Now, we're into the other side of the shot as Sam walks down. We're going to be into a very long dolly shot. And these are always fun to do for me. Um, we start, here they come, down the steps. And we're going to pull back with them across uh, this lobby over to some elevators that we built. These are actually phony elevators. And we're playing all this dialogue. Now, one of the real issues is not to make this boring and not just to have the actors stand and talk to each other. And this, this presents lighting problems. I can see now shadows on the back wall and I can see Sam slightly shadowing her. What do you do in a case like this? How do you light this scene? Is this from over his shoulder? Is it from above them? Is it from in front of them? Where would you put the light on the actors? Generally, at the area that's most open, as uh, number one, we watch the the uh, rehearsal and see how they play it. However, in some cases, the actors don't duplicate that when they shoot the, the uh, uh, scene. So consequently, we find try and find the uh, the area either on the uh, right side of them, depending upon whether or not there is a source there. Source meaning a window where light would be coming in. But in a situation like this, where it's pretty much uh, in an open room, uh, we can pretty much put the light where we want. But in this case, uh, we put the light uh, at the beginning of the scene on the uh, left side of uh, of uh, the actors. So he he leaned in a couple times, which created that shadow momentarily. But in some cases, that's kind of natural. Though. Now we're on an alleyway, which is again in downtown Toronto, and we uh, kind of built this whole this whole set we we plastered the walls with the Hobbs End horror and uh, around the corner comes Sam and all the trash the trash and the barrels and so forth are all set up by us and there's smoke in the background and blue light 
and um, we're into this this scene here. We had one night to shoot this entire sequence, and it was it was rather difficult. It was also very cold, and I I hate working in the cold. I don't know about you. Now we're back into his apartment. We added this scene on location um, to kind of give Sam a little depth in his character. He's talking to uh, to Bernie about what he's discovered, and I wanted to keep the uh, the uh, Philip Marlowe, Raymond Chandler, film noir idea. I told Sam that occasionally what he might do is grab his earlobe like Humphrey Bogart did in The Big Sleep, and I believe he does in a scene upcoming. This is a very uh, moody, moodily lit scene. It's sort of from a, looks like it's from above or the side, but there's not a lot of fill on Sam's face. Fill light meaning that there are shadows that created. His eyes go a little dark. Now we're into a daylight scene. Again, we're, we're inside shooting out where there's sunlight behind. But we're hiding a great deal of it with uh, signs in the background so that you don't have to overlight the inside. This was a bookstore. I believe it was on that main boulevard in Toronto. Young Street. Young Street. And here again we had to use uh, heavy filtration uh, on the windows to balance the light inside. Uh, the sun was changing rapidly because we started early in the morning and by the time we were ready to shoot this... Uh, the sun had crossed the street and presented a problem with the uh, bright sunlight hitting the buildings across the street. So we added more filtration uh, as uh, the sun moved. So we didn't have to keep on bringing additional lights in to build the light value inside up to uh, balance with the outside light. See, to hear you talk, it makes me feel like it's impossible to ever make a movie. There's so many variables in one particular scene that you're dealing with day or night and the sun moving and so forth. Now we're, we're back in uh, Sam's apartment and he's uh, again on the telephone talking about what he's learned and uh, we're going to go into this dream sequence in the alley. This was the hardest scene in this entire film to, to cut. I, uh, we spent uh, uh, literally months trying to get the balance correct between the real and the unreal here. This whole movie is about uh, uh, reality versus uh, Whose reality is it, and um, and who's controlling the world? Sam uh, discovers that he's a uh, he's basically a puppet with no free will. He's being written. He's a character in a book, and the world ends because the book writes it that way. So here he's he's reading. We're going to uh, go into our our dream. We're going to bring him back to the same point in the alley that we found him. There he is, and he's going to to touch the poster. And now we're kind of in the first part of our dream sequence. The sequence coming up is what referred to as the alley. And uh, we shot for one night in the downtown Toronto alley. Um, and what we have is a, a, a scene from reality that's now turned into fantasy. And we have our first effects uh, shot. There's a K&B uh, makeup shot. And this, this entire sequence involves a, a night shooting in the alley. And it involves inserts on a soundstage. Now basically what you have to do is um, we have to photograph the alley sequence as we are here and then later when we shoot inserts we then have to match the lighting from what you did here. Right, and duplicate the feel and look visually of what we see here now. We were using smoke and there's uh, monster masks on the crowd in the background. This man is fully made up and uh, in terms of, uh, of shooting this kind of thing uh, it's very difficult to make the makeup look real. You have to really work at it. And uh, 
we're now we're going to begin to get into the, some of the montage aspects. That, that, that. This was all shot later on uh, to make the sequence uh, uh, go slightly faster. Man with actually had one finger. Now we get into uh, some of the dream dreamier aspects of it. Sam wakes up, and uh, he's going to wake up a couple times, I believe. It's an old horror trick I first used in Prince of Darkness. It worked better there because the monster was a little scarier, but this one works all right. The audience seems to scream at it. Bango. And now we're into uh, uh, Sam uh, putting together the, uh, the puzzle of the book covers. And we're shooting in, uh, we're shooting in his apartment, and uh, I believe, if I'm not wrong, that was a, those were condos in, in Toronto, weren't they? Mm -hmm. Converted from an old church. And uh, what they had done was split the church in half and uh, separate it by probably, I think, uh, eight or nine different uh, condos, which were quite unique in themselves, to say the least. Little, All brick, exterior. It was a little eerie to be shooting this kind of a scene in a church, but we have a scene later in a church, uh, out front of a church that's pretty amazing. We're using... Uh, uh, for some of the shots here, now Sam is looking at the book covers, and we're going to come very close on some of the covers as he begins to uh, cut them. And uh, rather than, uh, th there's a series of dolly shots here, and we're going to be dollying around Sam as he's cutting, and the camera will keep moving. And when we cut to the close-ups of the uh, the book covers, it became a little difficult to move the camera and keep the focus, so what we did was we moved the uh, table at the background and kept the covers still, so it, can, it still looks like a moving shot. This is all, um, there we go, the table in the background is moving and not the, uh, not the camera. It's very difficult to keep focus uh, in widescreen, isn't that right? It's a little more difficult than, than uh, regular vision. Why is that, Gary? It uh, has a lot to do with the optics and, and the elements within the uh, glass of the lens itself and uh, also the iris that uh, these lenses have uh, only allow themselves to be open to a given point which only allows a certain amount of light into the film. So consequently uh, the amount of light, the, the distance from the subject and the length of the lens, meaning a, a, either a telephoto type lens or a wide angle lens needs uh, much more light to uh, project an image and with longer telephoto type lenses uh, generally uh, have a shorter focal length meaning the uh, depth of field the area that's covered between the lens and the uh, subject so it's minimized generally by two two or three two or three things the uh, light value the amount of light being used in the set uh, the distance from the subject and uh, the lens itself, depending on if it's a hundred millimeter, two hundred millimeter, or six hundred millimeter. See, the, the, what you just said is the reason why I did not go into uh, photography when I was at film school, because I had to learn all this stuff, and it was like calculus to me. I don't, I couldn't stand it. I couldn't stand having to figure all that stuff out. It's way too complicated. It's much easier to be a director than it is to light a set. But now we're finally in, uh, in, uh, about to embark uh, on our little journey to Hobbs End. Uh, Sam is uh, explaining his uh, his discovery to uh, Charlton Heston and Julie Carmen, and um, I believe uh, in this scene, uh, 
Sam actually tugged on his earlobe like uh, Humphrey Bogart. And now Julie's going to go with him on the journey. And um, off they go. Now we're um, out in the countryside. And uh, the camera is uh, literally mounted on the side of the car. And we're shooting in the window. It looks to me like the sun is is uh, over Shan uh, Sam's uh, out Sam's window. This is late in the afternoon. Yes. And these are always thankless scenes to do because because of of the the problem of uh, mounting the camera. Now we're on the other side, so we've mounted the camera over there. And it looks to me like the the outside is brighter than the inside of the car. Do you have to put big lights? Uh, on the car and light the actors with it? Here again, uh, generally, uh, you're fighting the problem with the sun as to where it is and the light value outside. And you have to uh, balance the inside light, but not make it look like so much that they're just lit by some source of light to balance the outside. And generally, there's a rule of thumb on this that uh, the look that you might see when you're in the interior of a car and looking out would be a ratio of two to one. So if you had a light value of uh, uh, 10, you would have a uh, light value inside the car at a, around uh, four. Aha. Well, now we're into a night scene. And uh, different than a day scene, the inside of the car is lit up. They look as if they're lit from the dashboard. And the outside is black. We did this intentionally because... Uh, they're about to go on a journey um, through uh, from our reality into another one, and we're setting up the road here. Uh, we worked for nights and nights just outside of Toronto. I believe it was over near the zoo, as I recall. Mm -hmm. And um, this, these are toe shots, and then some of them are, are done with poor man's process. And what that means is that we're sitting still, like this shot here, and uh, in the background is a, is a, a black uh, piece of cloth, and uh, we're not moving any place. And uh, we do that instead of a rear screen projection or, or, or car tow. The sound is also a little bit better in, the, in those cases. So we're discussing reality and we're discussing um, uh, Julie's love of, uh, of Sutter Kane and his work. And we're setting the audience up for um, basically this journey into, uh, into madness. This is a little unique in as much that uh, we didn't uh, really want to light the background uh, a little bit more than normal, only for the reason that they're going into this uh, fantasy of madness. So we kind of kept everything at a, I would consider, a bare minimum for detail uh, outside the car. Uh, certainly on, on, on some of the shots, we'll occasionally see a sign or something go by at a... Uh, that lets you know that they are on a road and we are moving. Now the, uh, she passes a boy. That shot right there as we're going by, the boy was actually stationary. We were moving the camera by him um, to make sure again that we got him in focus and so forth. Now he's receding in the rear view mirror. And uh, one of the themes of this movie is things that reoccur over and over again. She sees him once, she sees him twice, uh, she sees him again. Um, she's getting tired, and the stunt in this film, uh, when the boy does hit the uh, the car in a minute, uh, was done by a stunt person dressed up in a mask, riding right at the car and hitting it. And those are always 
frightening to me, no matter how simple they are. Now, here he goes by with makeup on, zoom, and he's about to return again and hit the car. As I recall, we uh, undercranked the camera. We ran the camera at uh, a uh, faster speed to give uh, the speed of the, uh, bi the bicycle coming at us a little quicker. She uh, takes her glasses out and looks at the map, and now we're going to have our stunt here in a second. She looks up. There he is. Wham! And we stop. Now we're in an exterior. Um, where would you, uh, where would you like this from? Because basically we're we're thinking this is moonlight. There are car headlights, but what kind of light is hitting like the bicycle right now? Where where does it come from? This would be also considered uh, moonlight or any other, uh, particularly because of the fact that it's blue, uh, would give it away as being moonlight. Uh, in some cases. Uh, being in an angle that you would be uh, with a camera sometimes gives you kicks and highlations, particularly on metal and so forth, that uh, uh, kind of amplify uh, the light value. But pretty much the overall uh, ambience of the scene is uh, uh, blue light. However, there is a shot here uh, with the phone booth that uh, has its own light inside. Plus, sometimes we use the... Uh, uh, the ability to, to manufacture a light that we never see just to uh, help the actors in the scene look a lot better. And they're about to get back in the car and now we're into the soundstage and we're, uh, I believe we're on a 75 millimeter lens and we're pulling out into a very tight close-up of uh, Sam and then we're going to pull back and reveal Julie and as I recall we had to put a board and extend the extend the camera forward on the dolly to get this. There we go. And she's going to look out the window down at the stage floor. Now this is a second unit shot that fades out and reality is gone. And uh, we're about to, to uh, do an IL ILM shot in a minute. They, I've worked with them many times and they've always gives, give the best effects uh, and the most startling. And this is one of my favorites. Uh, she looks down and they're kind of flying through the air. And then these uh, lightning flashes are all done on a soundstage uh, from various directions. And what we wanted to do was match in uh, Julie driving with uh, a shot on a real covered bridge that we spent a day shooting out, out the sides of the bridge. There's one little cut of it. There's the top of the roof. And uh, there we go. And really, you're using stage work and uh, location work and, and putting them together out into the sunlight. And there we go. We shot all the driving sequences um, inside the car and the covered bridge all in one day. That was a very long day, as I remember. I hate working long days. I'd rather go home, go to bed. We shot this particular thing in, in the scene in one shot. Julie looks over, we rack focus to Hobbs in, and we the focus comes back to the actors as she turn as he turns back. There we go. Back to her again. Those focus moves are done by uh, an assistant cameraman who's watching the actors, isn't that right? Yes. And he has to time the turns uh with his focus knob and uh hopefully, you know, make the timing the same as the actor when they turn. Now, what happens if the actor is off his mark a little bit? He's got to adjust to it. Uh, 
whatever he originally had measured at six feet and uh, he's got to pretty much uh, know they've moved two or three inches on a turn to so, compensate for it with the focus knob. So what you're saying is if an actor misses his mark it's the focus puller's job to guess where he is and adjust on the focus knob which is an right. impossible job. You actually did that a couple of times didn't you? Yeah a few. Uh, I don't enjoy that kind of thing, see? It makes me nervous. Now we're in Unionville, which is a small town outside of Toronto. It's actually a kind of a tourist town that we uh, managed to uh, uh, get all the merchants to close down for a couple of days. Primarily, we shot there at night. It's a nice uh, wide-angle lens. As you can see, the, uh, the light pole is bending because of the size of the lens. And Sam's going to look in a window. We um, we dressed it, the front of it, in silhouette. And we're going to get into our first uh, reveal of something strange. Here comes a dog. We shot this in, in slightly slow motion, including the children. Something I haven't done before. There we come. Here they come, the little darlings. Uh, all in makeup. A problem with the, with the dog was... Uh, we had to have a dog that matched, uh, that had four legs, and then one that matched it that had three legs. And the, the first time we tried it, our uh, three-legged dog took off across the countryside, and we chased him down. But unfortunately, not in time to do the shot, so we had to get another dog. Big rack focus here to the bloody axe. Woom! And we're off to the uh, Pickman Hotel. This was, a, this was actually a house. Um, on the zoo grounds, wasn't it, in Toronto? Mm-hmm. And there was some kind of bizarre story about the man who built this house. He built it for his wife, who was coming over from uh, Europe, and she died on the way over on the boat, so he never saw her. And this is kind of his, kind of his temple to the memory of her love. It's a very, very strange place. Several horror films have been shot uh, here in Toronto. Um, but I love the location, and... There's a look here that uh, you can't get in California. It's an East Coast look because of the trees. Uh, you, you see that the leaves are turning. It's a beautiful greenhouse. Sam and Julie are in the same costumes primarily, basically for the rest of the film, uh, which is easy and hard. You get used to them, but you don't have to keep changing the actors. They love the idea in the beginning, then they start bitching about it later. I want to change into something else. Now we're on the inside. It's really kind of an amazing place. Um, and Frances Bay is about to make her her entrance. And we have the moving picture on the wall. In a, in terms of a scene like this, Gary, where how would you approach lighting this? Are you are you are you approaching the scene from the light that's outside, or is this something that you create on the inside? Pretty much created it from the inside. Uh, when we scouted the location. Much of the uh, dressing is not there, and uh, you've got to kind of uh, visualize where or how this may look with uh, imaginary furniture and uh, the basic colors that exist within the, the interior of the uh, room. Uh, this particular uh, house had a lot of paneling in it, which was very pretty, and so uh, you kind of make up your mind that uh, you will use the lighting source from the interior opposed to using sunlight. Uh, from the exterior. We gelled the windows to let you know that it was daylight outside opposed to putting uh, any kind of uh, tracing paper or something that uh, pretty much takes away any visibility through the windows. 
But here I generally used the, the practical lights that uh, in a hotel that you would have. And after seeing how it's dressed uh, when we arrive on the set, and sometimes uh, if we're lucky it's dressed a couple days prior to the company getting there, it gives you a good idea as to the various ways that you have uh, to light it. So this was pretty much uh, using the practical lights and lamps and uh, overhead lighting uh, that were practical, meaning that existed in the building and uh, coming in with fill light and uh, accent lighting on the actors, meaning backlight and uh, side light and uh, uh, like with uh, Sam here, there's a little kicker light uh, that gives you the feeling that he's getting caught with light from outside, which is something that uh, we do from up above generally. Now we're actually, this particular scene is on a, on a stage that we built this set um, and the windows uh, uh, are lit from the outside, I believe. Right. Uh, and as the actors walk to the open the windows here, we are on location in a cherry picker with uh, shooting right out through the windows on our on our location. The church you're about to see is a real place. It's not a matte painting. People have commented that that uh, it looks like a matte to them, but it isn't. It's a a, a Greek Orthodox church that's sitting right in the middle of uh, of nowhere in this giant field. We've, we discovered it while we were location scouting one day. And uh, there she blows. It's 250 feet spires. And uh, we made a deal with, uh, with the reverend uh, and to, uh, donated some money to his, uh, to his fund to be able to shoot there. And it was quite a location. Uh, the two days that we were in front of the church for this entire sequence you're about to see were the coldest days I have spent on a movie since The Thing being in in, uh, in Alaska. I, I, you see this, the sky start to cloud up in the background of Julie's shot. It got incredibly cold. And I don't like it when it's cold. This sequence that we're watching now um, that, that we shot in front of the church was done over a two-day period. And the lighting kept changing. Uh, one day would be sunny, the next day would be overcast. And we're having to intercut all the shots. In other words, we're having to use something. Here's one shot, the shot from one day, where you see a kind of a, a cloudy blue sky up there, slight clouds. And uh, we pulled a little trick um, by shooting up at the spire and having, seeing the clouds coming in to try to mask the fact that the next day was totally overcast and, and different looking. There's nothing much you can do when the, the light doesn't match, does it? Is there? Not really, but however, depending upon where you are and what the set is, sometimes you can uh, completely uh, cover the uh, actors in uh, silks, which take all the sunlight off of them and makes it pretty much an, a dull, soft light overall, uh, which will keep the continuity uh, and coverage of the scene uh, isolated from the bright sun. In a situation like this, it was... All the shots were so wide and expansive that uh, it'd virtually be impossible to cover such an area. And the shots in, looking in the church were done on a soundstage. We're cutting in from the inside to the outside. And we're going to uh, reveal Sutter Kane in a moment, played by Jurgen Prochnow. And again, your lightning machine is striking the little boy. And there he is, Sutter Kane himself. And we're about to have the Doberman attack 
Uh, again, I used a little slow motion in this scene, something I don't usually do and don't particularly agree with, but uh, it seemed right here. Snarling dogs. I don't like working with uh, with dogs in scenes where they have to attack. We actually had uh, some pretty serious bites on our stuntmen. One of them had to go to the hospital because the uh, one of the dogs is the biter, and he'll dig right in and and tear your flesh. Basically, you have trainers who are leading the dogs across the set. Now they're interacting with actors in certain shots, and some of those fellows are. Uh, the one who goes down there is a dog trainer, and he's got an arm who's pa that's padded, and this fellow here has an arm that's padded, and the dog is actually trying to bite right through. Uh, that fellow had a nice bite on his, on his leg. And now we're going to go back to um, back to the set again and uh, have a dialogue scene where um, Trent and... Uh, Styles uh, are arguing about what's happened. I'd like to jump back, John, just uh, where uh, Sam looks out the window at the church uh, a couple of minutes back. That uh, I just wanted to comment on the fact that uh, it looks so much like a painting of the church that it's one of the mysteries of photography because uh, everybody that I know that's seen that swears that it's a mat shot. And uh, I think it's just a combination of uh, where we were, the time of day, the lens we used. But uh, it's one of the phenomenons in photography that uh, still baffles me to, the, to this day that uh, it has that kind of a visual look to it. Because uh, if I would, had not been there and shot it myself, I would have bet my life on it that it was a match shot. There's <laughs> a little bit of magic in, in photography, isn't there? Magic and mystery, I think, too. That's what makes it so much fun, because yes. you never know what you're going to get. And sometimes it works out, and sometimes it doesn't. These are, again, uh, difficult scenes to do and keep uh, visually interesting, because there's a lot of dialogue that has to be covered. As I recall, Sam missed his mark a couple of times on this. But you have a nice uh, glowing window back there and an, and an even light on the inside, and a little top light uh, coming down, highlighting their heads. That was a, that was a technique that was developed uh, back in the black and white days, wasn't it? Pretty much to separate the uh, actors either from a source, a window, or a lamp, uh, a hanging uh, a ceiling lamp. Uh, but generally, uh, it's, it has two uh, uses. It separates the... Uh, subject from the background which uh, creates a certain amount of depth too and also makes them look a little better so uh, Sam decides to uh, go back on his own and leave Styles there except she's stolen the keys now we're back downstairs in uh, in our location, uh, I can't remember what the name of this place. It was an unusual name. I don't remember. Wonderland or something. And the painting has changed once again. This is one of my favorite scenes in the movie because of Francis Bay's performance as Mrs. Pickman. The character was based on an H.P. Lovecraft uh, short story called uh, Pickman's Model. And she's uh, behind the desk, and her husband, we find out, is uh, naked and chained to her ankle behind there. 
because she's beginning to turn into something else. She's a very, very uh, funny and wonderful actress. It was a delight to work with. It brought a real strangeness to the character. We shot this movie in a rather relatively short period of time. As I recall, it was a 35, 36 day shoot, as I remember, which isn't a lot of time. Um, you have to use your time efficiently and get things done. You have a certain number of pages every day to, uh, as they call it, cover, get on film. And um, it's between the director of photography and the director as to how you approach a scene and you and I seem to uh, be able to handle the work most of the time. Sometimes we even get done early. Sometimes. Okay. To what do you attribute that? Uh, I think a, a lot of it is having the opportunity to be there in advance and to uh, pretty much get an understanding from you what you have in mind to a point that uh, there's always a possibility of subject of change and to figure out all the different ways that you have the uh, option under a tight schedule to uh, get a look in the story that uh, is going to be uh, suitable for the, the movie overall. And uh, sometimes it can be a real challenge, and uh, other times it comes uh, quite easy. Now we're inside a, uh, in a night sequence here, we're inside a set that's in, actually in downtown uh, Toronto. It's a bar set. And in terms of lighting this, uh, this sequence, you have dark red walls in the background. Does that provide any problem for you? In most cases, yes, because uh, red absorbs a lot of light, and it's uh, very hard to, uh, unless you pump a lot of light into it, to have it stand out, even in color. But uh, in this case, in this scene, uh, we wanted to keep it uh, quite mysterious looking with uh, just a minimal of lights, just to accent the background and let you know where you are. And... Uh, pretty much make it uh, very ominous looking. Now we're in the exterior of the church at night, um, all lit up and extremely cold. And uh, Julie confronts the little children. And we discover that one of the dogs, uh, his leg has been eaten off by the kids. That was the double of the original dog, uh, three-legged dog. Kids are in full makeup, and uh, children in movies always love to play monsters. They, they love it more than anything else. They try to be evil. They immediately start acting like Night of the Living Dead. I've never seen it fail. Sam returns to the hotel room, and just for a beat, looks around. Kind of a nice uh, dolly shot around the bed there, following him into the other room. And let him come back out again. And now we're in the front of the church. This is uh, <laughs> right at the exterior there. And as Julie goes through the door, we're going to cut to an interior on a soundstage, which was a giant uh, uh, warehouse uh, on the waterfront in, uh, in Toronto. Torch lit, uh, columns. Very beautiful, uh, beautifully done. It's a nice long dolly shot here, up to the upside down cross. And we're going to follow Julie now through uh, through the rest of this set, and we're going to uh, dolly into black there. And we're
we're cutting back to Sam as he begins to read the books. And now we're going to cut to another set in a second that Julie walks into. And this was a, a rather unusual sequence. We had her walking down a hallway up to a door. Again, this is all on a stage, all constructed. And she opens the door and looks inside and um, sees what appears to be a small room. There's a flat back there, a stage flat, and a table in the foreground, and a light hanging there. Now, as Julie closes the door and starts back up the hall, in the background, technicians are, are frantically pulling the table out, pulling the background out to reveal the real set behind. And on the soundtrack, you hear a lot of scurrying and screaming and banging and crashing, which we took out. And now it's clear. As she comes back up to the door and opens it up, what you have is an entirely different room across which is Jürgen Prock now, and a dog. And the dog moves on cue. And we had to do this take 13 or 14 times because the dog would run the wrong direction, the dog would be gone, the dog would run at Julie. Jeff Amata's hand drunk jumps down, and now we're into the scene. This was a rather difficult set to light. This is the inner, inner sanctum of uh, Sutter Kane. And as I recall, uh, the set is made up of uh, panels that are lit from behind. And they're like, they're not styrofoam, but what were they made of? A plastic? Fiberglass plastic, uh, and uh, with various colors of red, blues, greens, and yellows, and, and black uh, running through it. It was very difficult because uh, the light value in these plastic panels would uh, change radically from one angle to the next. So what we had to figure out in a short period of time is to find a, a common... Uh, place for the lights that, uh, and soften the lights to a point that uh, it wouldn't change radically from uh, one position of the camera to another so that the set would look pretty much uniform uh, all the way around no matter where we put the camera or stage the actors. <coughs> so for instance, a shot like this that pans him around the room and dolly slightly uh, would be difficult to do if the light kept changing in the background. The rubber door is back there uh, undulating away. And Julie is now captivated by uh, the power of Sutter Kane. And we're going to cut to the rubber door again. There it is, bulging out, being pushed by rubber door technicians behind it. And uh, this is kind of a strange love scene here where um, Sutter Kane shows her the secret of the manuscript, shoves her head down into it. This was a, a bottom lit, as I recall, um, a hole in a table with a light shining up at Julie and an uh, electric fan blowing her hair. Zoom. We have a little montage here of various things. And as she comes back out of it, her eyes are bleeding because she's seen so much. And we're about to do a special effect with uh, one of K&B's monsters. These are, these are difficult effects to light because uh, what you're really dealing with is a bunch of rubber on a set. And in this case, we had a full, uh, a full height rubber uh, monster on one side was uh, Jürgen Prock now, and on the other was this creature. Here we dolly back from it. And the monster begins to growl and move its arms. It has a lot of, uh, of goo on it, and it's lit, uh, what, basically side lit, top lit? In this particular case, we lit it from the left side, <laughs> side lit. And another term would be half, half light on the subject. Light coming from just one side of the uh, 
subject. Julie, of course, springs out at Sam here. Bango, she's got him. The key to probably to monsters and so forth is not using a lot of light because it certainly gives away the reality of uh, really what it is. And uh, in many cases, the less you see, the better it looks. It looks a lot scarier, too. And that shot right there was, was a suggestion of Mr. Sam Neill, who began his career as a director. He directed documentaries in New Zealand, and uh, one of his first documentaries was called Telephone Courtesy. And he suggested that I take an overhead shot of the scene, and he told me he thought that my editor would always be thankful that I did. But now you've got the lights in the room here on dimmers are going up and down as we, as Sam looks over and sees uh, the painting has once again changed. And we're about to get into a little horror sequence with Mrs. Pickman. She's further developed as a creature. And um, as I recall, we shot... Uh, Mrs. Pickman's creature uh, as a second unit after we'd come back from Canada with a, uh, a full-size miniature. Not full-size, I'm sorry, with a, with a small miniature operated by a, a puppet. There we go. This was all created after the fact. Now Sam is going to come down the hall here and go downstairs, and he's going from a location then. Here we go. There's the, there's the puppet down into a, a set that was constructed. There were a lot of sets in this movie for a low-budget film. Here's the set. He's going to come down the stairs. And originally we had Francis Bay in a full-size um, monster outfit, but it didn't, uh, it didn't look as good as, uh, as we wanted it, so we reshot this. And uh, sound effects by John Dunn were especially, uh, especially good in this. And there's a moment of horror here where her husband gets chopped Coming up, wacko, ooh, tough hit, tough hit. All done with uh, phony, phony blood, phony acts, phony actors, everything is phony. Now we're back, uh, in, back in the room and uh, Julie is beginning to transform. And um, the little tentacles that are coming out uh, from behind her are operated by technicians behind there. And the little whips that come out are literally little rubber whips that they pull back in. And here she comes uh, with an interesting look on her face. Sam goes flying out the door. And now we're into this hallucinatory sequence where Sam tries to get out of town and can't quite make it. He's confronted by various things along the way. There's a monster on a dimmer behind him there that is undulating wildly. There he is. Poor actor in a suit sweating his brains out. Now Sam is going to pull out in the main street. Here we go. We have a, a big street here that's one of your biggest lighting jobs on this film. And I noticed that the, the street itself is wet. Why, why do you wet down streets for night sequences? It has a tendency to attract more light and uh, you get to see a lot more reflections, which in some cases uh, is pleasing in the particular shot that you're doing. It reflects all the uh, uh, ambient light plus uh, any uh, practical lighting that the street may have or the buildings, so it gives it a very interesting look visually. And you can augment that with color if you like. We're back into our downtown Toronto location in the bar. It's a very popular bar that we took over. And uh, Wilhelm's gonna commit a little suicide here because uh, delivers my favorite line in the film, reality is not what it used to be. 
And uh, I actually, Sam retaliated for the injury. There we go. He smashes the glass. I was sitting in front of him in that shot when he threw the glass. A little piece went in my eye. So I, I figured he was getting me back for the cutting him on the back of the neck in that first sequence. And he, he promises me he didn't mean it. I don't know if I believe him or not. And we're about to come back out into the street after Wilhelm von Hamburg blows his uh, blows his brains out here. All off-screen uh, uh, gunshot here because of the no need to be graphic. We all know what happens with a shotgun. There he goes. Hand uh, falls down, blood drips, and out comes Sam. And we're back into our night shot. That That takes several hours to light a street, doesn't it? We generally come in before the uh, production crew, the light electricians do, and uh, of course we've scouted this and pretty much uh, determined how we're going to generally light it uh, for the background and the buildings and so forth. And uh, usually give them an earlier call, and they spend I, I would say two additional hours to uh, plus production time to light it. Julie swallows these keys. They were actually made of pasta. Bloop. It tasted. Rank. This was in the middle of the night. I'm telling you, it was the worst. The problem with this scene was the actors were giggling so much as they were fighting in the car. They had much too good a time. When Sam grabs a screwdriver and hotwires the car and takes off, I was assured by our prop man that this is the right way to hotwire a car by just jamming it in. Having never stolen a car before, I wouldn't know that. So here we go, and now we're off into the driving sequence that uh, I see the sun coming up in the background, the sky is light. This must have been very, very early morning. Mm -hmm. We were running out of night light. <laughs> and after the sun comes up, there is no more night shooting. So we're back in, uh, this, as I recall, this is a soundstage and a poor man's process. For a little dialogue scene here, and then we're back on the road again with our uh, boy with white hair. And one of the most unusual scenes uh, in the film, uh, here we have a little Jeff Amata screeching the car to a stop and we're back where we were in terms of the bicycle. And the boy is in a phone booth, uh, who knows why, but Mike DeLuca decided to write it in the script and I thought it was kind of neat. And uh, as Sam turns around, uh, Julie comes out of the car with her head on upside down. We shot this scene with a contortionist who actually, uh, as she comes out, had, this, had the head, there's Julie's head, on um, upside down, and she turned her, her entire body upside down and was actually walking across the road. She couldn't see anything, so we would have to guide her by voice. And then she would lift her head up to get the head to move. Now she spins over. There you see the trick. Very strange. And very difficult to uh, pull off because what you're talking about is a mask on, on, a, on, a, on, a, on an acrobat. We're back on the road again and Sam is going to uh, not be able to get out of Hobbs Inn. Uh, the road... Uh, Disappears here in a moment, or actually it glows. This was a mistake that we discovered in in post-production to kind of give it a sense of uh, 
and we put the light on him, and in he comes to Hobbs End. He's back in town. And tries to leave several times, but can't. And uh, we're intercutting uh, the location in Unionville, the road outside of Toronto, and in this case, uh, the soundstage. There we are outside of, uh, of Toronto again on the highway late at night. Once again, the same thing happens here. There's a flash. And we see Julie on the bike, uh, lit by the front headlights. And now we're, we're passing by, and they're stationary. All these are little pieces that you have to uh, set up and light, each one individually, and then cut them together, and you hope they work. We're back to our glow again optically, and then we're back in town. And finally, Sam is going to get frustrated with returning to the same place, and he's going to uh, take matters into his own hand. We have a little sequence coming up here that uh, we shot in uh, in reverse action by, um, by pulling away from the actress and shot it uh, in fast motion, so it, it seems to, to dolly very quickly. It's a dolly shot down through the crowd right into uh, Julie's uh, face. Let's see if we can pinpoint that. We have a standoff. He's going to charge the crowd. Here comes the car. And we're dollying along with the car through the crowd into... There's the shot. That was reversed. Uh, pulled back from her because we couldn't race the camera at her. We might hit the actress. A little stunt there and uh, Sam... Sam falls out, and uh, we next meet him inside the confessional booth inside the church. Now, this is a very tiny little set on the soundstage. How do you approach lighting something like this? It's a box. Pretty much from the top. I mean, there was no place to go. There is the screen uh, that they have on the side for confession that uh, we utilize a little later in the scene. Pretty much we lit... Uh, it from the top to give us the feeling of where we were in the uh, confession uh, booth and also uh, a light coming through the screen which has a kind of a mysterious feel an anonymous look to it a little glow from the from the screen window we're going to introduce uh, Jurgen uh, on the other side of the screen is is the father in this case uh, hearing the confession and the scene gets into um, um, a lot of interesting questions philosophically for me. It's uh, about the books and about religion and, and reality. And Jurgen um, is primarily lit in this position from uh, a light coming through the screen on him. You can see the pattern on his face. He's on the dark side. Now the other side... Uh, Sam is lit the same way. It's impossible in reality. You have to have a light coming from one way, but it's kind of effective uh, in, in terms of movie making. Are these uh, tiny sets easier for you or harder for you to light than, say, a big set? You only have uh, a certain amount of ways to go in lighting, and uh, they can be created in numerous ways. I mean, you can take walls up. In our case, we saw all three walls having the one empty wall with a camera in it. So uh, to get an effect, effective look, uh, 
you either come in from the side or the top or the combination of both. In this case, uh, we we use top and side light through the screen. So I've never understood in, in movie business why when you get to the inserts, the close-ups, and the small sets, why it takes just as long as it does for the big shots. You still have to put up all the lights and balance them. And, and, and match, generally, if it's uh, after principal photography. We're wearing a very tight lens on the on the Jurgen there. It's a very, very big close-up of him. Yeah, it's 180 millimeter, I believe. An effective uh, shot. Very dramatic on the big screen. Now Sam moves in and out of that light coming from the screen, and now he's top lit, and he comes forward, and you can basically see Jurgen's mouth moving, uh, talking on the shadow. Very dramatic lighting there. We're about to head into the uh, final fantasy sequence in the film uh, before we come back to reality, where uh, Sam is given the book and uh, runs back down the tunnel as the creatures from beyond charge us. Now Sam lands in the uh, inner sanctum set of uh, Sutter Kane, and we're about to uh, enter this last big sequence. This was uh, literally Sam has to run in the mouth of madness, as we find out in a moment. There's a kind of a tunnel to the outside world, it's shaped a little bit like a mouth. Uh, Jurgen is going to hand him the book and. Uh, have a little bit more dialogue here. You take the manuscript back to the world. Coming up in a moment is a, a special effect that was uh, not in the original screenplay, but one that Mike DeLuca and I came up with in order to reduce the budget um, from 15 million to 10. Originally, the town uh, at this point gets swallowed up in the book. The entire town uh, is like pulled with a gravity force or a wind and, and gets sucked into this book. We discovered that was going to cost a little bit too much money. So instead, um, Mike came up with the idea of the, of the book uh, paper illusion. Literally, Sutter Kane's going to rip himself in two and create a rip in reality. And on one side is our world, on the other is uh, looks like the pages of a novel. Beyond, we assume, is the, is the strange world of the elder gods, the others that wait outside to come and take our world back. Literally, they are rubber monsters. Now, in a moment, we're going to reveal the Mouth of Madness tunnel. This is called a forced perspective tunnel, meaning that if you stand in the right spot, the tunnel seems to go on... Uh, forever and ever, but actually what it does at the very end is shrink. The tunnel gets smaller. It's not, it's, it's not as long as you might think. It was about 128 feet or something, wasn't it? 128 feet, and now it looks like it goes on forever back there. I wanted to mention that the door and the uh, cement uh, form around it that we see here is uh, actually painted and uh, we added uh, 
a lot of black paint to the shadow area just to make it stand out a lot more than it did. The ILM rip. He tears himself open. Bruce Nicholson again from ILM doing a wonderful job. And now the rip in reality, and we pull back slightly. Kind of a strange uh, flower-like thing opens up, and there's writing on it. And this becomes, uh, on one side again, the book, and on the other, uh, our world. There we are. This uh, this this uh, paper-like material was actually uh, almost like tin, was foil. And uh, this is one of my favorite sequences in the film where Sam uh, is looking out into the void and Julie begins to read from the book and uh, what she is reading, Sam is seeing. And as any kind of uh, great moment in horror, I always love it when an actor can portray something that you can't show. And Sam is actually seeing these hideous creatures uh, uh, coming up out of a pit and coming towards our world. He's done entirely uh, by the look on his face. And that's all, there we are. That's always fun to do. It's also cheaper. Sam is an extraordinary actor and somebody I just love to work with. He's a, a great deal of fun. And now we have the charge of the monsters down the hallway. We had a we had built what we call the Wall of Monsters, which stretched the entire length of that, uh, that tunnel. And it was pushed, it was operated by about, I can't remember, 20 or 30 people, and it was tracked along. Here, there were a few uh, rubber monsters in the foreground walking. You're going to get a glimpse of it in a moment. These are all close-ups that we did on the creatures. To kind of give the, uh, the sense of movement. There they are behind there. There's... Lots of folks moving, ha ha, here it comes. You only get quick glimpses of these things because as in Lovecraft, you don't want to show that which is so horrible. Stuntman falls down and Sam almost gets killed and now he's in reality. We're back out on the same road that we shot the night sequences on, except we're in the daytime. And this is one of my favorite sequences in the film because the, the mood changes so heavily from fantasy into here he is in reality. We begin to see some of the elements. We wonder or not whether or not he's crazy. There's the kind of windmill going up there, and down the road comes the kid on the bicycle, who is now no longer a, a ghostly figure, but a normal kid. Again, the, your, I believe it's our 20-some-odd uh, millimeter lens there. Mm -hmm. Extreme wide angle. Making everything look good. Now Sam is going to make his way back to the city. And uh, the beautiful countryside outside of Toronto really does lend itself. You know this is not a movie that we, that we made uh, here in California because of the, the colors, the trees... It's on the outskirts of Toronto. It's always more fun to shoot in the daytime. Things seem to go a little bit faster, and if you have a nice, beautiful day, uh, 
The next shot coming up is one of my favorites. It's a nice wide-angle lens. The sky is, is just right. The corn's moving in the wind. A very moody shot. Sam is picked up by a truck, and uh, our next stop is going to be uh, the Woodbine Motel, which is outside of, it's actually in Woodbine, outside of Toronto. A kind of a funky uh, 50s motel. The interior, there's the exterior, shot with a kind of a filter. Plum color filter. We're into a set here, and Sam takes a look at Robot Monster, one of my guilty pleasures in life, and uh, is beginning to wonder about whether what he's been through is real or not. This is all a set. Uh, We're going to cut to uh, the daytime in a second, and uh, we'll be in the real motel. And uh, Sam will come in the door, and uh, here we are. This was a very small room. We've made it look kind of big with a wide-angle lens. What was it like lighting this room? You, in this particular shot, you see the ceiling and the... This was pretty much lit <laughs> from the outside uh, with our larger lights. And uh, to duplicate, actually, it was raining uh, periodically... Uh, during this sequence, in and out of uh, clouds, light was changing radically uh, as we shot it. So consequently, we had to adjust every two or three minutes. But for the most part, it uh, it matches pretty good. And we're back into the uh, motel set. In a moment, uh, Sam's going to stalk back in and grab the kid and demand to know uh, who uh, dropped this off for him and. Out of the back room is going to come our uh, our wardrobe master, Bob Bush, who's played many parts in many different films. He's about to step in. Ah, there he is now. And Sam is going to burn the uh, manuscript and continue his journey on to uh, back to New York. We make a big cut here to the bus. Some people thought we, in this particular sequence, used a uh, a blue filter on the camera lens to to change the from uh, normal to to blue. But in actuality, we had two buses. One was this brown bus that you see, and one was a blue bus. And we had two sets of costumes. And all the actors had their normal costumes on. And then they had blue costumes, and then we had to color everyone's hair blue. Uh, and put blue filters on all the lights. It was a big undertaking. And we're on a soundstage now shooting the night sequence. And we'll be cutting in a moment to uh, the day scene. And, uh, and all our blue, uh, our blue work. It's a lot of fun to do this scene. Bang, here we are. As we pull back, we can actually see the hair color is different, the costumes are different, the glasses are even tinted differently. The entire bus is blue. The seats are blue. Now we're back to the other bus. And Sam is freaking out. We're going to bring him back into New York now and, um, and move him on his way towards uh, the end of the film. 
He's getting closer and closer here. This was a very difficult shot for us to pull off, the one on Sam here. It's a very tight lens on his face as he's talking. The girl's uh, in the left of frame. And as he leans forward to say something to her, um, the focus becomes very, very critical for us. We have to follow him all the way in. And we almost pull it off perfectly. Right there. Just a little bit of a buzz, but it was okay. This was in uh, right across the street, pretty much from the from this particular set here, which we're back on again. And we've seen this before. We just bring Sam back through some of the things he experienced before. He's he's going to see what's underneath that poster that he was picking at earlier. It's actually a picture of his face. We realize what it is in a moment. And uh, nothing is in the alley. And we're going to go back to uh, Charlton Heston's office. I love this particular shot here, Gary, because we played it so much in silhouette. The actors are, are dark. It is nice. Our, our coverage, or our close-ups, uh, as we come in closer on the actors, we did light them. There we go. But basically, you're playing the light from uh, Sam's left side, aren't you, as it's right. falling across his face? From the outside. This particular scene was one that uh, Charlton Heston wanted to rehearse. He really got into this scene. It was his favorite. And uh, both of them do a great job in it. We discover that uh, Sam's not uh, thinking clearly anymore, and his reality is kind of permanently changed. Again, your lighting is it seems to be from one direction primarily, isn't it? Mm -hmm. from the outside windows, but you've got a little bit of light, it looks like to me, hitting the actors on the dark side of their face. We just have a little fill just to pick up a little detail so it doesn't go completely black. This was a very tough shot when he jumped up because he came into an extreme close-up, which uh, gave us uh, no latitude at all, and particularly in a scene where there was heavy drama involved, uh, it puts a lot of added pressure on us and the actor because if we have to keep doing it over and over and over again to get it to look good, uh, sometimes uh, it poses a problem. Right there. However, uh, we did coverage, which was probably uh, ten times tighter than what we see here on the screen. It is the one I'm actually referring to. Well, now Sam is, uh, is really freaked out, and, and he's going to... We're going to discover him in a minute, uh, even even more gone than he was earlier. Here we are in a line for the books. And as we pass the bookstore, you'll see the inside is kind of black at this point. But then in a subsequent shot, uh, we light it up inside. As I recall, I didn't want to, but you talked me into it. This is an interesting shot here where you have a... Sam appears in a reflection. It's very difficult to do in balance with the outside light. We pan off the reflection to reveal homeless Sam or crazy Sam. Now the bookstore is lit on the inside and out comes the kid. Who is going to meet an unfortunate end with the axe? 
And we're back into the asylum after this for the final moments of our film. So we've made a full circle dramatically, and we're back where we started. It reminds me a little bit of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, starting with uh, Kevin McCarthy and the Looney Bin. Sam uh, sums up uh, the idea of the extinction of the human race and the species. Uh, again, I'm referring to the apocalyptic idea that I've kind of covered in three movies. Uh, the Thing in Prince of Darkness and Mouth of Madness. Um, movies like that where you have down endings where the world ends is not necessarily the most popular with audiences. I think audiences love happy endings where all the heroes uh, walk off into the sunset, but sometimes it's fun to do something a little darker. And they're a lot of fun to shoot. You get a chance to do a lot of mood. I think that's one of the one of the things that's that's fun to do. In a moment, uh, after David Warner exits uh, the scene, uh, we're going to come back into Sam, and we have a little night sequence with shadows and flashing lights, and and uh, those are always fun to time when we're shooting them to make sure that uh, everything is effective and works out right. So we're back into the uh, hallway here, and the lightning machine's outside the windows. We can only really use them when the actors aren't talking because they make a whole lot of noise. They buzz and crackle. So you have to flash the lightning machine, then let the actors deliver their lines, and then as soon as they've stopped, flash it again. One of the things I love to do is have uh, remote control buttons on the set so I can push the lightning machine when I know they're not going to talk anymore. Bang, bang, bang. No more dialogue. Let the lightning flow. We start on the window, and uh, Sam is going to uh, react to the lights dimming, and we're going to do a little bit of a nightmare sequence here. The world goes crazy on him. And we suggest it with shadows outside the window and noises and sounds and, and lighting effects. It's always fun to do it that way. A lot of cuts going back and forth there with lightning. We see shadows outside. The assistant directors and extras out there in monster suits kind of flopping around each other. Yet it looks pretty good on the, on the walls. And everything stops. A moment of quiet before we bombard the audience with the last little little sound effect before we take the movie into its final moments. Are all the crosses a sense of protection for him? Or I think the idea is that he's, he's drawn crosses everywhere to hopefully keep out the evil, that he protects himself. The wooden door breaks open. And now we're into a day sequence in there, in our set. And a big uh, wide shot here, pulling back from Sam at the window of his cell, opens the door. This particular lens is uh, extremely wide angle, um, 
for an effect that we're going to do in a moment. As we, uh, as Sam comes out of the of the door, we're going to pan around to reveal the hallway and what's happened during the night. And uh, he's taking his time. I told him to be very slow with his sequence because there's a, going to be a scare coming up. We have a, a fritzing out a light down at the other end to take your attention, have a sound. Sam is going to walk very slowly down the hall, and uh, an extra dressed in black is going to cross in front of the camera, simply and purely to uh, frighten the audience. You try to get uh, as quiet as you can in these scenes. You don't know what's going to happen. Sam is taking his time walking down the hall. Sparks going off back there. And then, whammo. With the right kind of sound effect, the audience will be startled at it. It's obviously kind of a cheap trick, but I love cheap tricks. Now we're back into our daytime location at the water uh, treatment plant. Only uh, things are destroyed. So from the time we shot the first sequence until this sequence, um, we have to change the set, dress it, throw papers around. We're going to be back outside again, much the same uh, position that we were in in our opening shot. There we are. Paper strewn, smoke. If you look really carefully down at the right-hand side of the frame, you can see a couple of uh, folks wandering around looking at the, at the lake. They weren't supposed to be there. We cut out before they before they could really be seen. Now, Sam comes up to the movie theater in a much-changed world, and the movie-within-a-movie movie idea begins here. And we shot the exterior of this theater, uh, one of the most famous theaters in, in Toronto, and the interior was a very small theater on the east side of town. Here we go. Lots of smoke in this scene, as I see. Mm-hmm. And that ambient feeling of... Uh... Loneliness. What Sam sees in the screen was uh, uh, an optical from the movie put in uh, to an empty shot of, uh, of the theater. And as Sam uh, begins to go mad, uh, we see snatches of film from the movie that we've seen. And his eyes tell us he's completely crazy. And we're about to end uh, in the mouth of madness. It was a wonderful experience working with you again on this. It was a lot of fun. It was hard work. We had a good time. And it was a good time. We'll have to do it again. Uh, thanks for buying this disc and listening. And uh, this is John Carpenter and Gary Kibbe, and we'll see you at the movies. Thank you very much.